Acts chapter 1 tonight, please. I want to be an Acts kind of church. What kind of church do you want to be like at Liberty Baptist Tabernacle? I want to be like the book of Acts. I want to be a church that's alive and thriving. You see, we don't need a new way of doing things. We just need to find what God's Word says and do that. He's already given us the blueprint. How a church should operate, we find it here. We find in the book of Acts a church in action. And we see that throughout, I mean through the epistles, but the book of Acts just has so much. And we're going to see what the emphasis was through this book. Look with me here in chapter 1 and let's read verses 1 through 14. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also says, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Amen. So we've already covered verses 1 through 5 in previous messages. We spent three weeks kind of looking at some thoughts there. I just want to highlight what has already taken place before we move into verse 6 and forward. We see that Jesus has suffered and died. He has risen again. For 40 days after His resurrection until His ascension, He showed Himself. He appeared to the disciples teaching them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He told them that they would be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And remember from last week that Jesus teaches them of things pertaining to the kingdom because this is a transitional period of them seeing the Lord physically as they did for three and a half years off and on for 40 days to never seeing Him physically again until they arrive in glory. This is a transitional time and Jesus is trying to get them focused on the kingdom, on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Labor for that which is eternal. And so naturally, because Jesus had been speaking to them concerning the kingdom, 
the kingdoms what's on their minds. They were no different than we are today. They were slow to comprehend. Amen. Jesus had been teaching them not just for these 40 days. He had been trying to teach them for three and a half years of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Luke 17, 20 and 21. And when He was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, He answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Instead of understanding what Jesus had already told the Pharisees concerning the kingdom of God and how it would be known to have arrived, Jesus said, don't look for it. Nobody can point to it physically. Instead of understanding what Jesus had already taught the Pharisees, they are still looking and hoping for a restoration upon this earth that Israel would be restored to the glory days under King David. Therefore, we have verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked Him, saying, Lord, wilt Thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? You have to understand that the thinking in those days was that the Messiah was going to bring Israel out from under Gentile rule. That the Messiah would be a revolutionary. That He would lead a revolution and that there would be political deliverance. The kingdom would be set up and one would sit on the throne, this Messiah. And Israel would have all that they had back there under the days of David and Solomon. This is what's on their mind. This is what they were being taught. The two that were walking back from Jerusalem to Emmaus, They're talking about the things that have happened. Jesus comes up beside them as they're walking. They don't recognize Jesus, but they say to this man that has come up next to them in Luke 24, 21, but we trusted that it should have been He that would have redeemed Israel. Let me read that again because I butchered it. But we trusted that it had been He which should have redeemed Israel. That's what they were thinking. This one that they followed, this Messiah, this Christ was going to restore the kingdom. He was going to bring physical deliverance. This was so ingrained in their psyche, they couldn't even grasp Jesus' clear teaching. It's amazing how once we get something ingrained in our heads, it's hard for it to get out. By the way, the Jewish rabbis still believe this today. This is why there is still a rejection of Jesus of the New Testament as their Messiah. This idea that Christianity and Judaism share the same God is utterly false. I don't know if that's new to your ears. This is why I so dislike the term Judeo-Christian. I don't like that term when it's used to suggest that there's a commonality. If there's no common ground on Christ, there is no common ground. Period. From the website jewfaq.org, which teaches Judaism, it states, quote, The notion of an innocent, divine, or semi-divine being who will sacrifice himself to save us from the consequences of our own sins is a purely Christian concept that has no basis in Jewish thought. End quote. 
It goes on to state, quote, the Messiah will be a great political leader descended from King David. And then I condensed what was said. He will be well-versed in Jewish law, a charismatic leader inspiring others to follow his example, a great military leader who wins battles for Israel, a great judge who makes righteous decisions. But above all, he will be a human being, not a god, demigod, or other supernatural being, end quote. You see, Judaism is very clear that Messiah will not be God. Which is interesting because even in the Old Testament, there are passages which are clear on this matter. Isaiah 7, 14 being one of them that says the one to be born would be called Emmanuel. Which Matthew 1, 23 clearly interprets Emmanuel to mean the Christ. You cannot separate Messiah and Christ. It means the same thing. But there's a lunatic out there in our stripe that is running around trying to convince people that the Jews have a Messiah and the Gentiles have a Christ. And he's very well known. If I said his name, you all would know him. You cannot separate the two terms. They mean the exact same thing. Matthew 1.23, which being interpreted means the Christ. John 1.41 I'm sorry, John 141 is what interprets Messiah as Christ. Matthew 123 interprets Emmanuel as God with us. And John, he was absolutely clear on how God felt about those who reject Christ. 1 John 2.22 Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? Meaning, that believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Listen to what he says. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Yet people today are trying to say that Judaism and Christianity have the same God. Listen, we have Jesus as our God. They don't. I'm not being ugly. I'm just trying to inform you. Not to mention, Jesus was clear when He stated in John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Therefore, we have to be careful saying that both Judaism and Christianity share the same God of Abraham. They don't. The Bible says that the gospel was preached unto Abraham. There's so much I want to give here, but because Brother Craft's here, I'm going to resist that temptation. Stay in context of Acts chapter 1. Because if we get drifting any further into controversial waters, I'll be labeled an anti-Semite again. Suffice to say that the hope expressed in verse 6 in the first century is the same hope expressed in the 21st century within Judaism. When is the kingdom coming? When are we going to be delivered from this Gentile world? Listen, I share Paul's desire that all Israel might be saved. Just because I want to see Israel and the Muslims saved doesn't mean I must be anti-Semitic. Amen? I don't know who I was talking to the other day, but let me just go ahead and blow your mind even further because now I'm starting to feel cantankerous. It's my birthday. I'm getting older. i got to write. Who is closer to Christ, the Muslims or the Jews? You understand that Muslims believe that Jesus was virgin-born? that he was a prophet, that he ascended to heaven. Did you know that? 
and that Judaism rejects every one of those? That in their Talmud they teach that Jesus right now is burning in hell in excrement? So you tell me which one's closer. I want to see all people saved. And just because I want to see all people saved doesn't mean that I hate one group over another. Amen, preacher. Why, why are you telling us all this? I don't know. I, I know there's a missionary over there right now in Israel that's signing bombs that are being blasted down on uh, Muslims. Rallying people to give Bibles that don't have a New Testament. Give the Hebrew Bible out to the Israeli troops. Buy them jackets. Buy them guns. What, are we, what message are we sending? Where is our heart that we as Baptists don't want to see them saved but would rather sign a bomb and blast it on them and send them off to hell? That's messed up. Well, sidetracked over. Jesus' disciples were still looking for a political earthly deliverance in the kingdom of the Messiah. And so they asked Him, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, notice Jesus' response in verse 7 as we try to untense ourselves from all that was just said. Listen to what He says. And He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power. I love Jesus' response here. He doesn't even go there. When are you restoring the kingdom, Lord? It's not for you to know. He just doesn't even touch it. He seems to be rather vague by neither confirming nor denying anything. And certainly if Jesus, who is the Word of God, wanted to give them a clear answer, He could have done so, but He doesn't do that. It reminds me here, in verse 7 of a Pastor Williams response. For those who remember Preacher. Preacher? Blah, 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 blah. It's not for you to know. Thanks, I'm so glad we talked. I say that in jest, but... Um, Jesus, when are you restoring the kingdom? I, I'm not even going there. The fact is... There are things that we don't know and won't know until they come to pass. And I don't know who's going to be pointing fingers at who in that day, and I really don't care about who's right and who's wrong. But if we could just get a hold of that statement, it is not for you to know. But we Baptists know everything. The subject of prophecy has always fascinated us as human beings. We love the idea of knowing what is going to happen next. It captures our attention. Back when I was going through some of this several years ago now, I think that's the highest our Sunday night's ever been attended. People love prophecy. It captures our attention to the point that many new Christians, the first thing they jump right into is prophecy. When they're not ready to. 2 Peter 1.5, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And then add to virtue knowledge. That's the divine order. Once you have faith, add virtue. Add morality. Add right living. Learn how to do the basics. Walk with God right. Learn to have faith and what it means to walk by faith. And learn those basics. And once you have virtue, then add knowledge. 
these disciples wanted to know about Israel's future, and they jumped right into prophecy. Jesus says, it's not for you to know. Now, even though it would seem Jesus is being very vague here, I think Jesus actually says a mouthful in this little statement that he gives to his disciples. When he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, would you notice this next? Which the Father hath put in his own power. It's a great statement, and it is one, I believe, that is to get us to understand what is being discussed here. When Jesus speaks of the times and seasons which the Father has in His own power, I believe that what He is referring to is the end of this age. In the Olivet Discourse, in speaking of our Lord's return, we read in Matthew 24, 36, But of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels in heaven, but my Father only. And as you read through the New Testament, to my recollection, I may be wrong, but just thinking on my feet here, I think that's the only thing that we are told is in His power and in His knowledge that not even Christ knows. Is when He is returning. Mark 12, 32, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. So because of that similar language we find in the Olivet Discourse, and what we find here in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, I believe Jesus is hinting that there will be a kingdom set up when He returns. Whoop! Jesus is our prophet, He's our priest, and He's our king. He came to this earth, He was a prophet. He's up in heaven, He's reigning as our great high priest. And one day, He's going to come back to this earth, and the millennial reign of Christ will take place, and He will reign a thousand years as king. He's our prophet, our priest, and our king. Applying this to our church, I think we can say we don't need to get all stirred up over the timing of everything. I said before when I had to go through the series I did back then, it's not a platform issue for me. We're not hosting conferences on prophecy. We're not looking to show everybody how much we know on prophecy. I don't want to get all caught up in the timing of everything. There are some things we see which indicate the times in which we live. I don't think we even have to have the debate that we're living in the last of the last days. Amen. If you read your Bible, that's an amen statement. We are seeing it come to pass. We know the days in which we live, and we don't have to get caught up in the day or hour of the Lord's return. It's futile because only the Father knows. And we need to understand that in the meantime, listen now, this is where Jesus is going with this. In the meantime, we must keep the main thing the main thing. Look at what Jesus does here. He says in verse 7, it's not for you to know. And then in verse 8, look what he says. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost part of the earth. Jesus says, don't worry about the kingdom upon this earth. Don't worry about the timing. He starts verse 8 with but. But remember your main purpose in the meantime. Are you seeing what Jesus is saying here? Don't get so caught up in prophecy that you miss why we are here to begin with. 
Do we want to be a church who thinks we have all the answers concerning end times? Or do we want to be a church which is actively witnessing to the lost throughout the world? Now, don't misunderstand me. I want to rightly divide the Word of God. I want to have answers. That would be nice. Amen. But that's not our primary purpose here as a church. We must be busy fulfilling the great commission of reaching the lost, baptizing converts, and discipling believers. That's why we're here. I could stir up all kind of fuss and we could do YouTube channels and we could get all kind of attention. Because I could have a nasty spirit about everything and people would say, listen to that guy. That's not why we're here. We're here to reach the lost. But you shall receive power. Why? That you will be witnesses unto me. Jesus said in parable form in Luke 19, 13, Occupy till I come. That word occupy doesn't mean that we're holding the fort. That word occupy, we would put it this way, brother, it means occupation. Jesus says, busy yourself till I come. Occupy. Busy yourself in what it is that I've called you to do. We must be about the Father's business. Jesus asked the question in Luke 18.8, When the Son of Man cometh, shall He find faith upon the earth? And if we are the terminal generation, then I want Liberty Baptist Tabernacle to be where Jesus can find faith upon this earth when He returns. Say, but it's going to get bad. Yeah, probably. But will He find faith? Right here. So we don't occupy by being prophecy experts. We occupy by being witnesses. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. All over the world. This calling is far greater than thinking we have all the answers to prophecy. I'm not suggesting we've ever thought that. I'm just just saying. We're going to do a series called Just Saying. Now, I've already covered the importance of the beginning of verse 8 in a previous message that we had from verse 5. But if we're going to be effective witnesses, we must do so in the power of the Holy Ghost. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, In order to learn how to discharge your duty as a witness for Christ, look at His example. He is always witnessing by the well of Samaria or in the temple of Jerusalem, by the lake of Genesaret or in the mountain's brow. He is witnessing night and day. His mighty prayers are as vocal to God as His daily services. He witnesses under all circumstances. Scribes and Pharisees cannot shut His mouth. Even before Pilate, He witnesses a good confession. He witnesses so clearly and distinctly that there is no mistake in Him. Christian, Make your life a clear testimony. End quote. Jesus is our primary preaching point. Christ. He is who we point people to. We don't need to get caught up in all the debate. Whether it be prophecy debate or or gender debates or what's happening to that country nobody's ever heard of debates and 
We don't need to get caught up in that stuff. When we're dealing with somebody, we're pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be witnesses unto Christ by giving the Word of God. I like what Spurgeon said again. He said this, listen. The Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Isn't that good? Listen, we just give the Word of God and let it do what it does. Don't worry if you don't have all the answers. I got news for you from verse 6. You won't. Don't worry if you have all the answers. Just give the Word of God as it relates to a sinner's need for Christ. That's it. And, and I, I learned this lesson the hard way in my life, but as my military career went on, I was able to just look at people and say, we're not talking about that. I'm asking you, do you know Christ as your Savior? And you just keep pressing that point. Amen. And we see here that our witnessing is to propagate. Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, it's to keep going. It's to keep going forward. It's to keep going out. It's to keep spreading across the world. There isn't a time when the work is done. There's never been a time where there has been a shortage of sinners to reach. If we happen to reach all of Rapid City, then we strive to reach all the Black Hills region. And then all of the state. And then all of the nation. And all of the world. Say, that's ridiculous. That's your problem. We have a print press. It's amazing what God is doing through that. We just keep the main thing the main thing. This is a church in action. You are witnesses unto me. A church full of witnesses. Wouldn't that be something? Not a church full of prophecy experts that figured out verse number 6. Witnessing for Jesus. This, This thought ties into our theme this year. Fill Jerusalem with your doctrine. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to saturate our city. Amen? We're casting the seed. We're broadcasting the seed. Some's going to fall stones, thorns. The sun's going to scorch some. But listen, some's going to find good ground. And we're just going to scatter the seed. We're just going to broadcast it. Keep it going. Are you doing your part? Are you? Are you handing out the church invite cards? There's some out there. I stock them up when they get low on the table. Are you handing those out? Are you being a witness to your family, to your coworkers, to your friends, to your classmates? If this isn't the business of this church, then what is our business? Are we just meeting together on Sundays and Wednesdays and special meetings because we like having Christian friends, or are we burdened about reaching the lost? There's nothing wrong with Christian friends, amen? I'd like to have more of them, but the only way to do that is to reach them. Now, why do we need to reach as many as possible? Look at verses 9 through 11 again. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. The last words of Jesus to his disciples were, Go be witnesses unto me in all the world. And then he's taken up out of their sight. There has been much speculation as to what is meant by the cloud which received him. 
Was this the cloud of God's glory that we find in the Old Testament when the glory of God filled the temple and they couldn't even minister by reason of the cloud? Some have speculated it's the cloud of witnesses referred to in Hebrews 12.1. And if so, is that what it's referring to when it says Jesus will come back in the clouds? Maybe it was just a regular atmospheric cloud, Brother Petraco. Cumulus, Cirrus, Alto. There's 27 states of the sky that I'll be glad to give you whenever you're ready to have a meteorological lesson, but maybe it was just a regular cloud. Therefore, while it makes for an interesting study and good preaching point, we'll just leave it alone, amen? And, and I do think one of these days we ought to do a series where we just, maybe we'll entitle it, just leave it there for now. Because I seem to say that quite a bit. We're just going to leave it there for now. So we're going to do an entire series of everything that we're just going to leave there for now. And we'll just have fun studying all this nonsense. What kind of cloud was this? Amen. We could call it, we could call it, it's not for you to know. Amen. So anyway. These disciples, they watch our Lord ascend out of their sight. And these two men in apparel, uh, white apparel, show up saying, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Now, I think we would have done the same thing. <laughs> Amen? I've heard some preachers wax eloquently about these guys need to get going. Listen, I'd have been like, whoa. What kind of mushrooms was in our Subway sandwich today? <laughs> and so he disappears. They're gazing up into heaven. Not to mention Jesus would show up and disappear. And, you know, maybe they're hoping he's going to be right back. I don't know. But uh, He's gone. Why are you standing gazing up into heaven? So as they're gazing, these two men come along. Perhaps they're angels. Perhaps they're two saints like on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're not told. But they foretell of Jesus' return. This same Jesus is coming again. So why is it so important that we reach people? Because Christ is coming again. He could come for you now. But He's coming again to judge this earth one day. And listen, he's coming to this earth. There's going to be a time when it's too late. This is why we can't be sidetracked. This is why we can't be sidelined. This is why we must be busy giving the Word of God out. The Lord's going to judge the nations of this earth. He's going to pour out His wrath against all those that have forsaken Him. The Lamb is going to come as a lion. Now, unfortunately, there's going to be those who are going to mock and scoff at the idea of the Lord coming again. Remember in Genesis 19, God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And He sent two angels to go and speak to Lot, basically saying this, get your family, it's time to get out of here. God's going to destroy this place. Lot goes to tell his sons-in-law of the judgment to come from the Lord. The Bible says, but he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. In other words, they thought, you're crazy, old man. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied Him? When ye say, Every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delighteth in them. Or, Where is the God of judgment? And we're in a day where evil is being called good and good is being called evil. And we're on the precipice of it being broadcast. Where is your God? If you're plugged into the news, it just happened in Portland yesterday when Antifa showed up. 
a church had gathered together to pray. Antifa showed up and started shooting in smoke bombs and tear gas and whatever it was, pepper spray type stuff on these Christians and in these kids. And as they started to yank their microphones away, you can hear somebody on the video say, where is your God now? 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-7, through seven, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. You see, Christ's return is real. His judgment is real. Hell is real. The lake of fire is real. The second death is real. The new birth is real. Heaven is real. And if we truly believe this, then shouldn't we be doing all that we can do to get the Word of God out? Be witnesses unto me. And that's important because you're not going out there saying, boy, we'd really like to have you in church. You're not witnesses unto Liberty Baptist Tabernacle. You're witnesses unto Jesus Christ. I'm all for getting people in here, but listen, our responsibility is to point them to Jesus. Yes, you'll be mocked. But who are you trying to please? We don't need to just stand gazing upward, but what Jesus wants us to do is He wants us to look outward. Isn't that what He said in John 4.35? Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. In the harvest field now ripen, there's a work for all to do. Hark the Master's voice is calling to the harvest calling you. And I won't be surprised if I reference this song several more times throughout our study in Acts, but it was written by John R. Rice. In my opinion, it's a very powerful song. It's entitled, So Little Time. So little time, the harvest will be over. Our reaping done, we reapers taken home. Report our work to Jesus, Lord of harvest, and hope He'll smile and that He'll say, well done. How many times I should have strongly pleaded. How often did I feel too strictly worn? The Spirit moved. Oh, had I pled for Jesus. The grain has fallen. Lost ones not reborn. Despite the heat, the ceaseless toil, the hardship, the broken heart over those who cannot win. Misunderstood because we're off peculiar, still no regrets we'll have but for our sin. A day of pleasure or a feast of friendship. A house or car or garments fair or fame. We'll all be trash when souls are brought to heaven. And then how sad to face the slacker's blame. The harvest white with reapers few is wasting. And many souls will die and never know. The love of Christ, the joy of sins forgiven. Oh, let us weep and love and pray and go. Today we reap or miss our golden harvest. Today has given us lost souls to win. Oh, then to save some dear ones from the burning. Today we'll go to bring some sinner in. 
Is there a sinner the Lord has laid on your heart? Let's be busy.